Well, good morning. Glad to have you today. I want to start with a personal prayer request. Uh, I'm going to show you a little picture of both my grandsons. You've only seen one so far. And uh, there's little Henry, but look where his, his hand is. That's little Titus Ray there. Mom's pretty pregnant in that picture. And uh, Titus Ray is coming into the world Wednesday. So uh, I'd appreciate a little extra prayers. We're kind of excited about that. Hey, this sermon series, New Beginnings, it's more than a sermon series, but literally it's about a fresh start in our church, but more importantly, a fresh start in your lives. How many know all of us at times, sometimes our life gets on a plateau, sometimes we get off track, sometimes our life kind of takes a negative spill, but how many know God is in the restoration business, God is in the refocusing business, and we can have a new beginning? Now this week, or actually last week, I started a, a little three-part called Managing for the Master. Uh, it was about what we call our stewardship, or our management of what God entrusts to us. Uh, the definition of stewardship, and this is, this is a word we don't use a lot in America today, but I want you to think about it this way. Let's imagine if you've got you a brand new John Deere riding lawnmower. I mean, you have looked at that thing for years, and you have begged your wife, and it's just, you just need one. And how many know you got one, you're proud of it, you got your big straw hat, you're getting a little tan when you're riding it, and your neighbor says, could I please borrow your lawnmower? And something inside says, well, I guess it would be the right thing to do. So you let him borrow it, and he either, one of two things, he either brings it back with a flat tire and out of gas, or, worse than that, he puts it by the front of the road with a sign saying, for sale on it. How many know that guy's not a very good steward of what he's been entrusted with? You see, stewardship by definition is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to our care. And I have been encouraging you to see your life, the talents God's given you, the abilities God's given you, the resources he's placed in your hands. When Jesus is the Lord of our life, how many know he's our Savior? But he's our Lord. And when he becomes the Lord of my life, a, a good steward tries to make him first in every area of life. Well, this is what we're talking about. I'm going to continue it today, part two, in uh, what I think is probably the most balanced scripture in the whole Bible about, uh, about our stewardship. If you can put up that little uh, guy walking on the tightrope there. I'm going to suggest to you, this is from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to suggest to you, being spiritual in a material world is just like that. There are so many things that can pull us off, get us in debt, distract us, but God wants us to walk down that tightrope, not to fall off, but to come up on the other side in, in a way that's pleasing to Him. Now, I want to read your scripture first before we get into that. It's First Chronicles 29, because you see, the people of God have always invested their resources and building a place to worship God. First Chronicles 29, you may recall last week we talked about Moses. You remember they built the portable tabernacle in the wilderness, and the people gave what they'd received in Egypt, and they built that tabernacle. Well, now David is, is helping his son Solomon. David said, My son Solomon, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals, it's for the Lord God himself. And now because of my devotion to the temple of God... I'm giving all of my private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. It was literally tons. David was a wealthy man. You say, well, why would someone do something so extravagant like that? Jesus gives the answer. Jesus said, where your treasure is, 
Yeah. And if you read the Psalms, you know David was a man after God's own heart. And what God entrusted to him, he invested in his temple. In verse 5, he asked a challenge of the people. He said, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? And then the family leaders all gave willingly. They rejoiced over the offerings they'd given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And that's what we're asking you to do as you pray about new beginnings, what your part might be. And in our family, Linnell and I have already decided. First question is, Lord, do you want me to participate? But in our case, it's clear we're going we're gonna to do that. But the first thing, we, what we've been doing actually several weeks, is we've been praying. Remember I told you, I, I don't think it's good to just spontaneously deal with something so big. I think you need some time to pray, to seek the Lord about it, and have a settled peace in your heart. So Linnell and I are praying together, number one, asking God, and we're talking to each other. Because it's not just my thing or her thing, it's our thing as a family, and we want to have peace and agreement. We're going to do the devotions that are starting next Sunday to kind of help us draw closer and focus on God. I also, I'm very practical. I take a look at our budget. I'm thinking about our savings. I've got one daughter left at home, and uh, her love language is gifts, so I'm trying to factor her in the thing, too. She's in college right now. Actually, Rebecca's back from Africa for a week, her internship, week home, and she got settled in UCA yesterday. But, uh, 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 but this is how we're approaching it. And the last thing, of course, we're waiting for God's peace, and I hope you'll do the same. And the scripture or the theme of this uh, for uh, uh, our church is in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It's what the Lord told uh, Paul when he spoke to the church at Corinth about their desire to help the Jews in Jerusalem during the famine. And here's what he said. He said, each one must decide in his heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure because God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And this is, I hope, your, your, your takeaway from it. Well, today we're going Managing for the Master Part 2. We're looking 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I think you will find it's the most balanced teaching in the Bible about handling our material world. And the gist of what I want to communicate today is how you and I as spiritual people can live in a material world. And it's pretty neat how the chapter is laid out. The first part of it is dealing with what I'm going to call a money trap. I mean, no, money is, a, money, money is neither uh, moral nor immoral. It is amoral. And it can either lead us in a good direction where we can do things to help people, or it can lead us in a ditch. How about Jeffrey Epstein? The name, ring, ring a bell? A billionaire decided he would really go off in the flesh and got in the sex trade industry with young girls. He was finally arrested, and uh, suspiciously, he, he was hanged in his cell yesterday. I wish I could have told Jeffrey Epstein what I'm going to tell you today. I wish I could have helped him avoid the money trap. We'll talk about that. I think that's going to help you. Then we'll talk about what's probably my favorite scripture here. It says, when God, God is the one that provides for us, and God gives us things to enjoy. And well, I'm going to really let that scripture sink in because I, I, I want to encourage you not to have any guilt whatsoever when God, when you're living for the Lord and you're managing for the Master and He allows you to go on a nice vacation or buy a nice new home or a new car, never be apologetic, never feel like you have to drop your head, but be thankful for what God has given you. And then lastly comes the balance about our generosity. So I, this, this brings it together for me and I think it's going to, I think it'll help you in so many ways. Let's look at the context first. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 5, as we talk about the money trap and its potential to, to, to destroy us. Now, the context, when you read your Bible, you don't just take a scripture and just, 
you know, take it out because you'll often take it out of context and it'll lose its meaning. Now, when Paul was writing, strangely enough, he was writing to greedy religious people. I mean, just because you go to church or have a Bible under your arm doesn't mean that you're living the Christian life. Well, this is what's happening here. And, and, and sadly, Paul said that their minds are corrupt. They have turned their backs on the truth. In other words, it's an outward religion that they have. It's not of their hearts. And listen to the phrase. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. In other words, they go to church because it's a good place to hand out business cards. Or have you ever uh, had an opportunity to deal with someone in a business that on their business card they had a little Christian fish? How many know the Christian fish is the universal sign of Christianity? Well, we met a guy, Linnell and I, when we lived in California many, many moons ago. And uh, he was a contractor, and we were adding a bedroom and a bath onto our home. And uh, it's a little nice Christian business card. He went to church in town somewhere. Well, let me say it nicely. He was a Christian crook. He took a, he took a progress payment, and uh, he, off he went to Canada. And uh, it was a very trying time of our life. But he was using Christianity to further his business. So this is kind of how Paul talks. Now, now uh, it begins to speak to us. He says, yet true godliness with contentment is great wealth. Now, remember the other guy? It was a show of godliness. Now, this is true godliness with contentment. And he'll say, that's great wealth. Now, if we were to have conversation and say, what is great wealth? Someone might say, it's my new Chevy Silverado. That's great wealth. Somebody else might say, it's my two-carat diamond ring. That's great wealth. Somebody else might say, uh, it's my thousand-acre ranch with turkeys on it. That's great wealth. Well, all those things are material. They're not e evil in and of themselves. But, but, but there's something that's more important, godliness. Endeavoring to be like Christ, living the scripture, walking the walk and talk as well as talking the talk. He says it's great wealth. And, and this word content is an interesting word. Content by definition simply means peace of mind in our present condition. It means being satisfied with what you have. Now, I want you to think about uh, usually when you get married, most folks that get married uh, typically don't have too much. Uh, when you get when you're you go to your parents' house and maybe your parents been married 30 years, both have jobs, and you go in their living room and it's a nice leather recliner and it leans back and you just feel like you could go to sleep. Your couch, though, you found on the side of the road that somebody gave away. How many said that? <laughs> I understand. Well, listen. Hopefully, one day as you work, as you learn your skill, as you keep character in your life, God will bless you and you can get a leather couch too. But how many know you can be just as content on that old couch? Come on. It can have holes in it and everything else, but you can put a nice blanket on it and you can put a pillow on it. You can be just as content in that old, with that old couch as you are with a nice new leather couch. Because if your contentment is based on the niceness of the couch, I'm telling you, it's going to go out of style. It's going to get a hole in it. The kids are going to spill something on it. Or... You'll go in another furniture store, you'll sit on your couch, and you're just in your recliner, and you realize your long legs are hanging off the edge, and you don't enjoy it. And you go to another place, and you sit in another couch, and the legs are longer, and then you're never happy when you sit. Are you with me today? We're talking about contentment. And then he says, in, uh, he, it's a very striking statement, verse 7, 
We brought nothing with us when we came in the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave. But yet so many people live their life. They work 60 hours a week. Their goal is to arrive at some dream, material dream. And again, material dreams are not bad. My pro- the scripture says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. But our pursuit is not for the things. Our pursuit is for God. Just like I told the kids, you're going to school, you're going to learn, but you're going to school to be a witness for Christ. Just like when you go to work, you're not going to work to make money. You're going to work to serve the Lord. That's your mission field. And as you work and serve the Lord, you're going to make money and God's going to bless you. But it's which is first. This is so key. Uh, he said, and this is, this is uh, foundational, if we have food and clothing or the basics of life, let us be content. It is possible. Now let's look at verse 9. Now is where the warning starts. But people who long or crave to be rich. Now I'll suggest to you having a healthy desire for a better life is a good thing. Having a healthy desire to be able to plan for your retirement, to be able to plan for your kid's education, to be able to get your kid those new tennis shoes they want or the jeans with the holes in them or whatever it is. Desire is good, but desire can turn into craving, and that's where the danger starts. People who crave to be rich fall into temptation, the temptation to do wrong. And notice what it says. It's a trap by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into destruction. You say, oh, come on, no way. I want you to think of one man, Judas. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the inner circle of Christ. But listen to what John 12, 6 says. Judas was a a thief, and he was in charge of the disciples' money. Jesus knew about it, and he often stole some for himself. Now, I don't have any idea what he stole his money for. I guess maybe Judas had that turkey ranch. Or maybe Judas had a second home on the Sea of Tiberias. And nobody else knew about it. And he had a little fancy chariot he kept somewhere where he could go to his secret. Nobody knew about it. It was a private thing. But my friends, I'll suggest to you it was one of the tools that Satan used to destroy his life. Today, Satan may use sexual lust. He may use the lust for power. But he also still uses the lust for material things to distract us from the true purpose in life, which is following the Lord. And, of course, Judas's story, this thing became so ingrained in him that Judas in Matthew 26, he went to the priest and said, How much will you pay me? How much will you pay me to betray Jesus? And for a handful of silver dollars, Jesus was betrayed. And you know the ironic thing? After he betrayed him, he realized what he had done. He realized the foolishness of his action. He tried to give the money back. They wouldn't take it. And then he went out and committed suicide. This is what happens, and the Bible has a term for this, how it happens. It's called the love of money. Look at verse 10. Paul said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, clearly, money is not evil. How many believe money is evil? Raise your hand at me. Anybody? Several of you do. If you will give your money to me after church, I will take that evil money away from you. No. Money's not evil. It is the love of money. That's the root of all evil. How many know we're supposed to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? So it's not, is money important? Sure, money is important, but it's just not more important than God. God is more important than money in second. This is what he's saying. So the love of money 
by definition, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, here's our word, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. In other words, the definition of the love of money is a greed, a strong desire that will compel you to do anything to get it. Think of that old movie, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. I'll do anything to get money. I'll lie, I'll steal. That's where the love of money becomes corrupting. As a Christian, <laughs> I've got a list of things I'd like to buy. Anybody else? I mean, I have a list. I have a budget. I'm kind of organized there. But you know what? If I don't get them, I never get them. That's okay. But what would I do to get it? What would I do? What would it take of something I really, really wanted? Would I take something from my neighbor? Would I lie to the IRS? Would I steal from my employer? This is where the love of money gets a hook on us. It's, it's grounded in a belief that money will meet my needs and make me happy. Now listen, money certainly makes life easier. And everybody said amen on that. But money in and itself won't make you happy. Because anything I have ever bought, after a while it became old and it either found its way in the goodwill or it got traded in for something else. And the smell of the new leather or whatever the case is, it only lasts a little while. Uh, even VeggieTales has something to say about this. How many know Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber? Have kids? Listen to what they had to say here, Bob and Larry. Uh, Bob the Tomato said, Larry, how much stuff do you need to make you happy? And Larry the Cucumber said, I don't know how much stuff is there. I'll give you a little story. You remember the parable that Jesus told when Jesus uh, warned against covetousness and greed? And then he said this statement. He said, your life is not measured by how many possessions you have. And then he told a story about a farmer who was a rich farmer. He he very successful. He prospered. He realized his cro he would have so many crops that year, he didn't have room to store it all. And here was the dividing, the, the decisive point of his life. He said, I know what I'll do. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and then I'll have enough room to store all my stuff. I'll put my feet up in the easy chair and say, eat, drink, and be merry. You have got it made. And you remember what God told him? Yeah, you're a fool. You're a fool because you don't know when you're going to die, and then who's going to get the stuff that you have, have stored up for yourself. Here's what's missing. That man was an owner, and he never asked God what he should do with his wealth. He was in control of it. What if he'd have asked the Lord, and what if the Lord would have said, fill your barns up and build an extra barn for the poor in the city? And when people run out of food, just let them come up and don't sell it to them. You just give it to them in my name. That sounds like something the Lord would have done. But this is an example. Now look at verse 11. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. And again, he's not saying run from money. Listen, my prayer is that you might be blessed in abundance. The Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. Deuteronomy said that God gives us the ability to obtain wealth. But my prayer for you is that God finds us all trustworthy with what he gives us, and the love of money never takes root in us. Listen to what, uh, what, what, what he told Timothy. Verse 11 says, you, Timothy, are a man of God. So what's it say? Run from all these evil things. And how do you run? Pursue righteousness and a godly life. He didn't say you quit your job, but he said you quit going to your job to make money. You start going to your job to serve the Lord. And in serving the Lord, you'll make money. He says, you pursue righteousness and a godly life. And then he said this, fight the good fight for the true faith. 
Which means if you're on that tightrope, you are fighting for your life. You're not trying to fall off to the left or fall off to the right. You're trying to make it all the way to the end safely. And then he says this, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. So he's made a connection between our material world and eternal life. Not that you buy your way into heaven, but the way we handle our resources in this life as ha ha can determine uh, whether, first of all, if we get to heaven, because they can pull us away from God, but secondly, rewards that we'll receive from God. So how do you find this balance? Let's, let's keep reading. How to be a spiritual person in a material world. Here's what Paul said, verse 17. He said, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not trust in their money, which is so unreliable. But their trust should be in God. And here's the great phrase, God richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Now, I'm going to look at five words in that for just a moment. We're going to look at uh, uh, rich, we're going to look at proud, we're going to look at trust in money that's unreliable, and we're going to look at enjoyment. Notice when he said, those that are rich in this world. Now, I would imagine virtually every one of us in this room today, if, we, if, if uh, someone asked you, who is rich? you would talk about somebody who has more than you, right? That's, I, that's what I would do. But I want to suggest that you step back just a second and contextualize our lives in terms of the world. The World Bank in 2018 said this, half of the world's population lives on $5.50 a day. Half the world's population. You know the only place I know you can eat in town for $5.50 is a gas station? To get a hamburger today, you're going to stretch yourself to be able to buy a hamburger, fries, and a drink for less than $10. Usually it's around 12 I mean, this is the world that we live in today. If I go out for lunch and buy one hamburger, or if I go to Subway, you know, and spend $8, I could, I could, that could be the whole lifestyle of two people in the third world. Now, I'm not saying that Subway's bad and hamburgers are bad, but I'm just saying, in a very real way, all of us are rich. We may not have everything we want, but we're all rich. Notice the second word, don't be proud. Money can make us proud in a negative way, self-reliant and independent. Now, let me say this. I think it's a good thing to be responsible for yourself. I think it's, an, it's a good thing when a child leaves their home. Part of being an adult is they're going to stand on their own two feet. You're not just going to move from your home when mommy and daddy took care of you to now your spouse takes care of you or all your roommates take care of you and then one day the government takes care of you. No, I think responsible people work, they learn how to pay their bills and take care of themselves. But what this is talking about is it's talking about a self-reliance that I don't need anybody even including God. Listen, if you have money and health, you can live like you don't need God. How many understand that? You see it all the time. Wealth can make us believe we're better than those that don't have as much as we do. Now, this is where pride comes in. Have you ever gone, uh, driven, I don't know, to a parking lot and all the cars were nicer than yours and everybody looked at you funny? Or have you ever been to a, uh, I don't know, a, a festive event and it said, you know, dress nice or whatever, uh, and, and you went in and you had your best on, but they really had their best on, and they looked down at you. Well, that's pride. Well, or have you ever been up here looking down on someone? See, 
Have you ever driven up in a new vehicle you were able to buy and somebody else drew up in a clunker and you can't? Well, this is the world. This is worldliness. This is not godliness. It's worldliness. Listen to what Ezekiel warned about. Ezekiel 28.5 says, By your great skill in trading, in other words, you're a successful business person, you have increased your wealth, and listen to this, because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. We have to guard our hearts. Proverbs 16 says pride goes before destruction, and that is not a good thing. Uh, the word trust, I mean, we want to trust God and not money. Now, it's a, it's a tricky thing there because money offers a false sense of security. that Money can take care of us and we don't need God. Who can tell me what the national motto is? Yeah, in God we trust. And where do you find it? You find it on every bill in your billfold. You find it on every coin in your pocket. How did that come to pass? Interesting story. The U.S. Mint webpage tells us that it was suggested that God be recognized on our coinage in 1861. In other words, a number of years ago, not the founders, but Christians that were living 140 years ago, 160 years ago, they recognized that money is not the source God is the source, and they wanted to make it clear on the money. So Congress in 1864 authorized that new coins have that motto. But interesting, 1907. Now that's relatively not that long ago. How many know there's always secular people that don't want God in society? Boy, are they noisy today. They don't want God, you know, in the courthouse. <laughs> you don't know manger scenes, no prayer football games, no mention of God in schools. I mean, there's a, there's a purge going on in America. Well, they tried to do it in 1907, and there was such an upheaval in America. In 1908, Congress made it mandatory that God in trust was on our coins. And I want to suggest the same spirit needs to be on us today. There's a division in America today, and there's a growing hostility and it's a, it's a hatred that's bigger than just politics. And we feel it around us. But listen, Christians, we and I need to stand up for what's right. If we don't stand up for our values, our rights as citizens, uh, if we don't stand up to them, we're going to lose them and they're going to be taken away. Uh, you're not, nothing's wrong with us when we stand up and say we believe kids should have a right to pray in school. Nothing is wrong with us when we are proud of displaying in God we trust in our schools in Arkansas and Texas and the place of, of business that we're in, of being able to pray in public, whatever the case is. We need to be a voice for righteousness in America. Come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand. Now, that word unreliable, I want you to think about this. Money is unreliable. Proverbs 23, 5, in the blink of an eye, Wealth disappears. It can sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. You say, oh, come on. Okay, I'm glad you asked. Last Monday, a couple days ago, I read this headline. The Dow, uh, Dow Industrial Average, dropped 767 points. And one of the business blogs I read said all three major U.S. stock indexes were having their worst day of 2019. Listen to this. Trillions. Trillions in wealth disappeared. It was in the process of being erased. Now, thankfully, it didn't keep going that way. It started to ease back up a little bit, but in one day. You can get your 401k statement or your IRA statement in the mail at the end of June, and you can say, man, I'm doing good. And then if you check it the day after this drop, you'll say, what happened? That's the nature of wealth. God, on the other hand, is rock solid. Now, let's look at our last word, enjoy. Remember when we read that God richly gives us what we need 
for our enjoyment. Have you ever bought something? Let's say you, I don't know what, you went and bought a nice outfit at Dillard's and uh, somebody came up to you and they said, man, that's nice. And, and you immediately said, I bought it on sale. Or maybe you come driving up in your new truck and they say, Man, I wish I could afford that. Well, they gave me a good deal. Do you know Ford's selling trucks right now for $9,000 under the sticker price, and, 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 and I've got a 4% interest rate? You don't have to do that. Just tell them thank you. You don't have to feel guilty if you're able to take your kids on a cruise or Disney World if you're living as a good steward. Now, if God doesn't have a place in your world, now remember there's only four things you can do with your money. You can spend it on your needs, and have me know, we define our needs either with God's help or, or, or on our own. You can have fun with your money. You can save some of it for the future. And here's what many people neglect. Most people live that way. Well, a lot of people don't even save either. But most people try to live that way. But here's the fourth one. You be generous with your money. As a good steward, you help other people. You bless people. Well, if you're living that way with one, two, three, and four at work, and you have the ability to enjoy something, you pray about it. My wife and I always pray before we do something outside of our normal budget, and God gives you peace. Come on, enjoy it just the way he's given it to you. Give him a big hand today. Now, here's the balance as we, as we ramp up. Stewardship is the key to not falling off that tightrope. Paul said this in 6.18. He said, tell them to use their money to do good. Now think about that simple phrase. How can I manage for the master? How can I avoid the money trap? Use your money to do good. And then he tells us how. Be rich in good works and generous to those in need. And then he says it again. Always ready to share with others. It is this simple phrase. Don't just use my money for myself but let a portion of it be used to help others, to do good. Now this phrase, be rich in good works, I share this at our vision dessert, which, by the way, I would love to have you come. We have two more. They're tomorrow night at 6 and 7.30. I promise you, you'll walk out with a smile on your face. We have good time together. We have good fellowship. I'm sharing a lot of details. I just won't share in church with you because I believe church is time for the Bible. But anyway, uh, in, in those vision desserts, I shared a great, great testimony. We've been doing our, our, our planning and all our, our staging and our bidding for our new property location for several months now. We've had six professionals in our church. I'm talking contractors and engineers and architects and, and uh, lawyers and, and, and other things. Six of them that have donated in their bidding process to either do it at cost and not make any money on it or do it at a reduced rate. Now think about this. Six people, and you know how much money that's going to save the church? A half a million dollars. A half a million dollars. Why are they doing that? Because they're using their money for good works. And then they'll go out on their next deal. God might bless them twice and they'll make up on it. Well, I shared that in, in one of our meetings. And then one of our elders was there and he said, you forgot to include me. I've got professional uh, finishing skills and I make cabinets. And I said, I was going to be in charge of making all the cabinets. And I thought, well, there's another $25,000. He'll get him a team. And then someone walked up to me last Thursday and they said, Pastor, you may not know, but four of us work at a security company in town. We've talked to our boss and he said uh, the company would sell us all the security equipment at cost and our guys would install it for free. So what is all that? People, 
people are using their money for We've got people with lawnmower services, and they'll go out and they'll cut the grass and not charge. Now, maybe one day we will charge, you understand? But people are trying to use money for something good because they realize the church helps people. And notice this phrase, be generous to those in need, always ready to share with others. I want you to hear this one. This this, this is so important. You know, uh, Matthew 25, which Jesus is describing what it's like before the judgment seat of Christ. And he separates all of humanity in two groups. And one characteristic of the group that are believers that follow God, Jesus Christ said, I was hungry and you... Yeah, I was naked and you... What did they just do? Just exactly what Timothy said. They were generous to those in need, ready to share with others. Friend, this is how we manage for the master and find stewardship at the core of our life. And let's close with this verse, verse 19. Paul said, if you do that, If you use your money to do good, you're rich in good works, you're generous to the needy, by doing that, look at verse 19, you are storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the time to come so you may lay hold on eternal life. What's he saying? He's not saying you can buy your way into heaven. What he is saying, though, is God sees your good works. God remembers them. And as you invest a portion of what God gives you in his work, And in people that are in need, God will bless you in this life and in the life to come. Come on, give him one more big hand today. He's worthy of our praise. For you see, what we do with our money on earth will affect us in eternity. And when we give, when we help other people, we're also helping ourselves. And this is what managing for the master is all about. Hey, I'm going to close this way as we've done the last couple weeks is, is a little video interview with some of our staff. Each week I give you a chance to hear from our staff members about what they see about the future. And this is Pastor Travis and his wife Whitney and even their kids at the end. He's a, a, our executive pastor and he does our, our college ministry. Listen to Pastor Travis and Whitney. Hey everybody, this is Travis and my wife Whitney. And I've been on staff here as a pastor for 13 years. It's crazy, Uh, but what a lot of people may not know is we actually started attending Church on the Rock before I ever started working here. Uh, We were 20 years old and we were back home from college for just a short time and we were looking for churches. And when we came to Church on the Rock, there was just a fit. Uh, Just there was a freedom in worship. Everybody was so friendly and hospitable. We loved the teaching. And ever since then, this has been our church home. Uh, Like I said, we've been here over 15 years and now kind of full circle we have three kids of our own and they're in kid zone and they're enjoying just learning about Jesus and it's crazy to see what the Lord has done uh, since then to where we are now and as many of you know we have walked through a crazy season of our life in February we had the birth of our third child and then 10 weeks later Travis got his kidney hallelujah we're so excited about that and although those are both incredible blessings to us it's been a very challenging season to walk through and I cannot imagine walking through life without the support of our church family and our life group. Whenever all this happened, we had to go back and forth from Texarkana to Little Rock every single week, sometimes two times a week. And our church family just stood up and took care of our kids. They brought us food, they rallied around us. They really just met every need that we had. And so looking forward into 
and what's to come in our new home, I'm excited about family. I'm excited that there's gonna be so many families that are gonna come to this place and receive the love that we get, we got during this season of our life because there's so many genuine people here ready just to pour out, ready to love, ready to support and just be the body of Christ. And so that's why I'm excited about our new home. Yeah, and I'm excited about a lot of things, you know, but just like Whitney said, there's a lot of families in Texarkana that need Jesus. Yeah. Man, they need to know uh, that God loves them. They have kids. They will have kids that need to know that God has a plan and purpose for their life. Listen, this new building isn't just a building. This is going to be a place where people come and get connected, where they have family, where they learn about God, where people are saved, and where literally generations and legacies are formed and changed. And so we're excited about what God's going to do. We're excited about the future. And you know what? I know my kids are excited too. Yeah. <laughs> so Gabe, why do you love our church and why are you excited about our new church home? Because it's fun. Let's and we learn about God and Jesus and we love Him. And thank you for, all, for Him dying on the cross for our sins. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Why don't you stand to your feet as we close today? Gabe's a little preacher. I've let him preach before, and I asked him the other day, I said, Gabe, you ready to preach again? He said, yes. And I said, what are you going to preach on? He said, Noah. So I'm going to have him up here one day. Hey, listen, before you go, I want to say today, I'm so glad you came. I love you. But I want to ask you to pause a minute before you turn off church mode and go into lunch mode and ask yourself the question, in the last 30, 40 minutes, what did the Holy Spirit say to you? We talked about a very private subject today, our material world. And I hope you feel first that I love you, not that I want something from you. But our stewardship affects our spiritual life. I want you to bow your head just a minute. And I just, again, what did the Lord say to you? And that first part about money having the power to pull you away from God. Are you going to work to make money? Are you going to work to serve the Lord? Are you content? Do you feel ashamed when you buy something new? Enjoying life? Don't do it. Turn that over to the Lord. Just thank Him right now for what He's given to you. How about that part using your money to do good? Does that resonate in your heart? Is it in your heart today that I'm going to manage my money? I'm going to manage my talents. I'm managing for the Master. And Lord, I would dare say that probably everyone has that feeling today. We want to be spiritual people in a material world. And we just need your help to be able to do it. For all of my friends today, for my life as well, I pray that you would bless us. pray that you would always provide for us. Not just what we need to have, but Lord, a little extra to enjoy and to share. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's close this way. We're going to have one last song. And I want to ask you, unless you just have to be somewhere, don't just rush out. Because during this last song, people are deciding whether they're wanting to come to pray or not. There'll be people making steps towards Christ in these next few minutes. We're going to have our prayer team come up, as we always do. And if you need prayer for anything, we'd be honored to pray. 
Maybe there's some financial pressures in your life today and you want somebody to pray for you that God would help you get a way out. It's a great time to pray for that. But perhaps the most important thing we'd like to pray for is, is your personal relationship with God. Now, even that statement, a personal relationship with God, if you would have told me that in my late teenage years, I would have no clue what you're talking about. I thought God and going to church, and that was pretty much it. That you just went to church and you believed in God. I never knew that you could have a personal relationship with God. Now, my little small country Methodist church, we'd sing that song. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. Now, that little song made me feel good, but I didn't know God like that. And something dramatic happened to me on August 15th, 1976. So how can you remember that? changed my life. It was the day I committed my life to Christ. I was 19. I had a nice car. Dad bought me a car for graduation. I was on an athletic scholarship. I was a punter and a football team. I had plenty of dates. I had beer in the trunk. I had, you know, all the things that worldly people have. But I had a hole in my heart. It was like there was a bucket inside me and I'd pour all my life in it. But there was a hole in the bottom and the next day it drained out and I'd have to pour it all in again. Someone told me that if I would begin to follow Jesus Christ, He would meet the deepest desires of my heart. He would give me the purpose of life for which I was created. And it was at that time my ears were open to listen. So here's what some people mistakenly believe. Some people believe that I'll get right with God, I'll get right with God tomorrow. Well, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. The reason people make real steps to Christ is not just in response to an intellectual argument, but it's because God draws their hearts. Well, you can't say no to God time after time, time after time, and assume that He'll call you another day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today and you feel like I'm talking right to you, let me say this, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through me, telling you that your Heavenly Father loves you and He has a plan for your life. And I promise you today, is what we're gonna do, we're gonna sing this song, I want to invite anyone that wants to commit their life to Christ to come to the cross. Let us pray for you. Maybe you've gotten away from God. Today you want to come back to Him. Recommit your life. Let us pray for you. And there's something powerful in that journey, walking away as it were. It's a picture of walking away from my own life and the symbolism of walking to Christ. We'll pray with you, give you something to help you. I promise you it has the potential to change and begin to sing, Pastor Zach. Our worship, our prayer team is coming to the front. Many women will be here. Come on, prayer team, to the front. They're going to line up. If you want prayer for anything, slip up here. But most importantly, if you want to make a step to Christ, we'll see you at the cross. I love you, and thanks for coming, and sign up for those vision desserts in the lobby.